there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Thanks so much for tuning in today. It is a little dolcezza almond latte day for me. Uh, not sure what you're quaffing as uh, as you settle in for another caffeinated career conversation, but hope you've got something warm and maybe a little creamy to boot. My guest on today's episode is Gabriel Sebastian, who is a program manager in Mexico at Population Services International, which is a global health international development organization, also known as a nonprofit. Gabe is also advisor to the board at Maverick Next, also at PSI, which is a philanthropic effort targeting next-gen philanthropists, and we're going to be getting into that with him. Gabe has a super interesting background. He was born in Bolivia, but grew up in Mozambique in a family of social entrepreneurs. In fact, his family founded the largest social enterprise in Bolivia. Gabe, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? I am drinking uh, green tea and ready to go. Okay, that's not like high caffeine, the same level that I have from my espresso shots in my latte, but good enough. It's healthier for you, right? (laughs) I just like the taste. (laughs) Hey, Gabe, where in Mexico are you? Mexico City. Fantastic. You could be next door. This is a better connection than what I had with somebody who I was speaking to in uh, Massachusetts yesterday. So I I love technology. Gabe, you are a program manager Mm -hmm. at PSI. Can you get into the primary functions of this job? Absolutely. As a program manager, um, I I guess there's a a little distinction I have to make. We have different levels of uh, management. There's local management. So we do have offices around the world where we run our programs. And then we have HQ. Uh, which is based in D.C., but then we have uh, people also kind of around the world working for HQ. HQ so meaning pro- headquarters. Sorry Correct. to interrupt, but just want to make sure they know that. Yeah, at headquarters. So I'm a program manager at the, at the headquarters level. So my job, my day-to-day, so to speak, involves making sure that the, the local offices are meeting their programmatic and financial objectives to, the, to our donors. This involves everything from uh, working with the team on designing the interventions, what are we going to do? Uh, what activities are we going to run? We definitely a lot of developing of uh, work plans. A work plan and a budget is sort of like our bread and butter. We see these things every single day. We track these documents, so we're looking at the work plan and seeing what activities are moving forward. What are the bottlenecks? If there's bottlenecks, how can we help the teams find solutions for them? We're tracking the budget, making sure that we're, our budget execution is on par to what is expected from us. In, in this industry, we're measured a lot by uh, what's called indicators. There's anything from process indicators to global health indicators to impact indicators. And these are sort of like our performance objectives. So the donor is, uh, is checking our performance based on these indicators. And as a program manager, I'm making sure that the country team are meeting these indicators as well. So that's it's it's really that I like to say that uh, informally your job is a lot of sort of like detective work, trying to find out what's not working, and then putting out fires. A lot of the times things change. the The countries we operate can be quite complex. Beautifully written and beautifully designed plan or activities. Um, the moment you land on them, everything doesn't work. So you have to be able to quickly adapt to that. With it. on top of 
doing it with the country teams. So that's really it. I mean, I spent a lot of time on the phone or on Skype with the country teams speaking in French or Spanish. So you very rarely speak in the language you, you you're like your first language. So it's quite it's quite interesting. It's never dull. Let me put it that way. <laughs> For sure. So, Gabe, could you give us an example of maybe one of the programs that you're managing right now and like maybe take us into doesn't have to be a problem, but maybe some a little snag that was hit and how you help to navigate, the, you know, help the country team navigate their way around that snag. Absolutely. Um, so one of the countries I'm supervising, so to speak, is Haiti. And in, in Haiti, we have a, a very large program that's looking at youth sexual and reproductive health. And it's the, the concept around that is it's threefold. So we have sort of three pillars, three components, and each one has their own indicators. The first one is to create more knowledge and awareness about the whole suite of sex, uh, reproductive health products and services. Because right now, the, the, the only really known ones are the injectable and the pill. Well, well, there's quite a lot others that we do offer and are in the long run provide a, an alternative to women. And the second op- uh, sort of component is how do we make these products and services sustainable? So it's how do we make sure that it's not just freely given and the moment the project ends, these are all, these all disappear. But how, would it, how do we get the Haitian market to a, like, really take ownership of these products so that once this project ends, these products and services are still available to people? And um, one of the one of the challenges we had is that while we we did a lot of work and and we did get the uh, distributor and the market to adopt them, we're having a hard time uh, finding the best way for young women to really take interest in these products. We tried everything from traditional uh, marketing, the big billboards, the big ads, the radio, the sort of like the old school way of doing it. And one of the I, I guess one of the examples of putting out fires or finding solutions to bottlenecks is is that we sat with the team. I I flew to Haiti, sat with the team, and we just really started going through a brainstorm session about, you know, clearly the traditional is not really working. We need to start thinking non-traditional. And we landed on, like, we studied these young people's behaviors. What, What exactly are they doing? Which involved getting out of the office and interacting with uh, with youth and just like any youth around the world it, it's it's the same behavior they're on their mobile phones these are youth that have means to pay to buy these products they're on their mobile phones they're chatting their messenger they're on whatsapp they're on instagram and one thing we notice is that we our presence in these uh, platforms were not as strong as as our presence in like traditional media so we just took a, a leap of faith. Uh, we're like, okay, why don't we just divert the funds from traditional media to social media or these new platforms and see how that works out? And it did. It's starting to pick up. You know, we have a lot more engagement. We're able to get direct feedback from people, which in, in a radio spot, unless you ask them to call in, it's very hard to get that. And it sort of it started turning the tides around. So that that would be an example of something that's. As a program manager, you you involved in uh, you're part of a, a team to find a solution. It's my pers- personal favorite example because I, I like this sort of innovative approach. Social media might not be innovative in the real world, but definitely is innovative in this industry. So that would be uh, an example I can give of uh, how do how do we tackle hiccups from a different perspective? And as a program manager, you you're also responsible for that, even though the the team executing are responsible for doing the activities. 
you're also responsible for meeting the, the objectives. So you better have some creative ideas as well. Yeah, you actually took the words out of my mouth. I was just thinking about what you were saying in the Time for Coffee espresso shots, which I recommend that Java junkies who are interested in international development listen to because Gabe gets into more specifics regarding the kinds of opportunities that would be available to you. But when you said one of the things that you really enjoyed about this line of work is the opportunity to be creative and to problem solve and how you're never bored, right? You're always Mm -hmm. like being pushed just when you think you may have whatever it is mastered, you're challenged again. And you have to constantly be trying to think outside the box to, to figure out the way forward. Gabe, take us into a typical day. And I know there's probably no such thing in your line of work. But if we were a fly on the wall, kind of watching you, what would the day be like? So it starts off with you waking up, you're preparing your cup of coffee for me, tea. <laughs> and the first thing you do is you actually check your phone to see all the emails that landed while you were sleeping. Because uh, since we work globally, you're working across many different time zones. So while you're sleeping, you might be getting emails from people from Burundi, for example, that need your assistance. So you do that. And while you're having breakfast, uh, what I like to do and most program managers would do is you would rank these emails in order of priority. And how you do that is actually quite simple. You just ask yourself sort of a, a, a question. A rhetor- I guess it's a rhetorical question. You would say, of all these things that are happening, and often it can be from 50 to 100 emails in a day. It depends on the time of the year when it's reporting season, when the donors want the report. You have to ask yourself, which ones can increase the most value today or which ones can cause most harm today? So you do this sort of ranking. And by the time you're done with breakfast, you head out to the office, or in my case, you... you my office and in Mexico, and then you just start working. First thing you do is you get on a call with the, with the country teams, barring any time differences. As, uh, but for me, I only have two or three hour time differences. So it's not that big of a deal. And you start digging deeper. Like what, what exactly is the problem or what exactly are you trying to achieve to add more value to this program? You sit with them, you hear them out, you strategize a few things and the best ideas or solutions, you start putting them down on paper. And by paper, I mean an Excel spreadsheet, and we call it a work plan. We start writing reports and narratives. You, you write a lot. So I would say write, writing skills are actually pretty important as well. I mentioned languages in the first set of questions, but I would like to add writing. It's also very important. And then uh, la- last thing you do is once you have all your ideas in paper, you start translating them into budgets. What does this mean in terms of money and execution? Do we have the budget for this? And if we don't, what can we do? How do we, we, we use the term realign the budget? Do we need to take some money out from one activity to put it into this, et cetera? So that you do that almost every day. And then once those are, are done, you, the team takes it over and then you, you set up a, some sort of calendar of how often you'll be checking in on them to make sure are the activities happening? Is there anything that we need to change? And how are we doing with the budget execution? So your, your month is almost already planned before it starts. So you have these key sort of calls already planned or meetings. And then day to day, you get random calls or people say, hey, we figure out that there's something that's not working. We really need to fix it today. And they'll call you up. So you have this sort of template of a month of all, all the months of the year. Some of these uh, days are blocked off. And you, you know these in advance. And then your day to day, you wake up and there's that hundreds of emails and hundreds of calls and you have to prioritize them. So that's, that's, I would say that's the most sort of common day you can have. 
And throughout this entire day, you might be speaking two or three languages uh, in, in the span of nine hours. So it's uh, or in writing in these languages as well. So it's it's quite interesting and qu- sometimes quite taxing. <laughs> I bet you're tired at the end of the day. Yeah, it, it, you you find a rhythm eventually, but uh, definitely when I first started, it was it was it was long long days. I was it was hard for me to try and find this rhythm, and it had to do a lot with. My mind just couldn't grasp switching from English to Spanish to French and back and forth, etc. Gabe, during the introduction to you, I mentioned that you're an advisor to the board at Maverick Next. Could you explain to our Java Junkie community what Maverick Next is and what you do as an advisor to the board? Absolutely. So Maverick Next, PSI, a few years ago, started Maverick Collective. It was... um, an innovative idea of a philanthropic fund that would be managed by PSI and uh, with the assistance of Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And the concept of that fund was how do we get high net worth women to invest in women issues around the world? Uh, so anything from menstrual hygiene to sexual reproductive health, etc. And that fund uh, was very interesting for both people because from the global aid or global health perspective, now you're dealing with more, more structured philanthropic efforts. You're dealing with different people. The, the reporting was different. So it was a huge learning experience. And for the philanthropists, they quite enjoyed the, the idea of being involved in these projects that so they themselves can have a bit more of a say than just writing a check to someone and sort of forgetting about it. So the next evolution of that is at PSI, we started conceiving these things like, what does this look like in five, 10 years down the line? Is it still going to be the same philanthropist or what we're seeing now is this hyper acceleration of wealth where we have very young people that are extremely rich and maybe some of them, hopefully the vast majority of them would like to do something sort of like a giving it forward. So we decided to create Maverick Next as a platform for next generation philanthropists. So these are young high network individuals who like to have a, like a, a, their hand held through a philanthropic program. It differs a bit from Maverick Collective in that it's not just a philanthropic programming. It's also coaching these next generation philanthropists of what it means to be a philanthropist. Anything from how do you start advocating for your programs or your health areas that you want to focus on? How do you start speaking in public uh, in, in, in high net worth events like um, Clinton Global Initiative or SoCap in San Francisco? Uh, so we, we coach them through because they're, they're quite young, and uh, these are the things that they want. Um, so it, it's half almost like a curriculum for them to become model philanthropists as, as they grow older. And the other half is philanthropic investment that's targeted to youth programming. So it's youth, like high net worth youth, helping youth around the world. So that was the, the idea. Uh, and as a, as a board member, as advisor to the board, I'm part of the... Um, we have external board members and we have internal ones. I'm part of one, the internal ones. And it's everything from, since it's a brand new fund, you know, uh, working with Rina, which you met, which is uh, sort of the director of Maverick Next, to uh, to understand, like, how should we structure the fund? What is the operating mechanism? What type of engagement should we have with the the board members of the fund and also the philanthropists that are coming into the, to the fund? And also, how can we involve the broader PSI? Because we have a lot of young PSIers in the office, not just at the headquarters level, but around the world. And is there a way we can get more, get them more involved in this fund? Because in, in Maverick Collective, it, they didn't really get much involvement unless you were part of the specific team that's uh, working on that project. 
So it it, ha- it has to do. My role is mostly around. Uh, I guess you could say a bit of a design of the fund and its operating model. I'm not leading that part, but I definitely help uh, on designing it to make sure that it's the best experience for the philanthropist, the best experience possible for the board members, and the best experience possible for PSI as, as a whole. That's and so then, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's super interesting. It's my first board uh, position, and it's uh, it was it's really interesting to to be part of it, and it's it's such a for me personally, it's such a crazy good idea having this. Uh, I'm thinking things like, you know, Kylie Jenner becoming a billionaire soon, uh, uh, with the youngest female billionaire, instead of maybe using her, her platform to sell more things that are questionable sometimes, like really skimpy fashion for tweens and all that stuff. She could use her platform to help hundreds, if not thousands, or even millions of people around the world, youth like her, that have not been as privileged. So that's that concept to me was fantastic. And I'm really excited for to be part of it. Well, if any of our Java junkies follow Kylie, then maybe they maybe could tweet could at her. her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, you know, as you were talking, Gabe, I couldn't help but think the fact that you studied international business with a specialty in marketing at Maastricht University in the Netherlands probably comes in handy. I would definitely say so. You know, it's it's interesting because um, you asked me about what majors are important. It's very interesting to see the evolution. All of a sudden, business majors are really highly sought after in this industry. But, uh, you know, the, the typical ones, the uh, health, uh, public health or uh, international policy, all of those still apply. But business is, start, I'm starting to see that it really comes into in handy, especially with when you're dealing with a fund and philanthropists, it's, it's as much pitching a business as it is as much pitching a philanthropic endeavor. It's kind of the same skill set. The only difference is the business model, I would say. So when you were in college, did you know what you were going to do when you graduated? Did you know how you were going to use the major and the focus that you had? Yes and no. I always knew that uh, whatever I decided, uh, I picked as a career, I always wanted to give back to people. Since my family grew up, you know, being socially conscious, uh, they, they were social entrepreneurs, they were also working in global development. It, it just sort of ran in the family. I, I wanted to give back in whatever way, shape or form possible. But uh, when I was in college, I got wind of the term social entrepreneurship. And that's what I decided I wanted to do. I, I, I wasn't sure what, but I wanted to be able to operate in a more sort of independent model, as not necessarily relying on external philanthropists or donors, just sort of like internal business model that can generate my own means of sustainability, but also give back to people. So I, I think that's why I chose business. Uh, I figured, well, I might as well understand how to make a business model and uh, see how it goes. What is a social enterprise and how did you, what was your first job out of school and how did you get it? Well, a social enterprise, it, it's, it's like a nonprofit with the, ex- the exception is that their operating model and by extension, their business model is completely different. So the business model is is more akin to what you would find in a in a traditional business or a corporation. So you have you either you sell something, you have some sort of revenue stream that is consistent. So it's not dependent on donors or philanthropists and that you generate your own revenue, uh, which creates a surplus. And this surplus is what you use to keep the do- sort of the doors open. So it's, it operates just like a business. I sell something to you. I make a profit. I, I keep that profit and I decide what to do with that profit. The difference with a corporation is that what I decide to do with my excess profit is entirely driven by social goals as opposed to financial goals. So I'm not 
my stakeholders are no longer just my shareholders, if you have any, or my customers. It's more like the general well-being of the people, either the community I serve or the country I serve, etc. So that's I, I would say that's the best way to describe a, a social enterprise. And uh, my first job out of school was actually in a in a tech social enterprise. It was a startup, so they were they just had the idea back then, and I got it because um, I started. In my last year in my bachelor's, I started getting really into case competitions at school, which, by the way, I think is the best thing anyone can do at any university, no matter what major they're taking. Just do a lot of case competitions, uh, get your name out there, get the experience. And through that case competition, it was about making eco-friendly detergents. It was sponsored by one of these big consumer goods company, Henkel. And through that one, someone in the competition, because we were trying to apply this really crazy idea of using nanobots to make a sort of like smart detergents don't require anything. And it's, my, my idea was like, it would, it would be cool if they were like tiny microscopic mechanical spiders that just eat away the dirt. So you're always <laughs> clean. And because uh, and it was like eco-friendly, I, I told my idea to one of the, the coaches from the competition. And he had heard of, of a tech startup that's trying to do something similar with fair and uh, ecological technology. And he just gave me a, a name and I followed up with them. The name was Fairphone uh, with, and the, their v- mission was to make fair trade smartphones, which I thought was a, a crazy idea, but also a really cool one. And I noticed that they had a, a intern position for like a community manager for their social media page. Cause back then it was just really grim. Uh, they were not like their first language was Dutch. So their English was really poor and they needed some help. So I decided to apply just, you know, see what happens. And when I, I got the gig, I showed up at the office. The first thing they do is introduce me to the social media coordinator because they already hired someone else. <laughs> and, they, and they just asked me, so what else can you do? And I told them, well, my major is marketing. So, okay, you can be the marketing guy. And that's how I got that interested position. Then I stayed with them and I, I guess I got promoted to a paid position for, and I stayed with them for almost a year. And uh, I love, I mean, I love the startup scene. I think that you asked me how I decided to do what I do. I never knew I was going to be join a startup. It never occurred to me in my life to join one, maybe make one, but never join one. And that changed my perspective. Uh, I think especially brand new startups, you just do all possible jobs. Like you might get a title, but it doesn't mean anything. I've done everything from, you know, marketing analysis to customer service. I, I remember having to to hopping on a two-hour phone call from a nine-year-old German woman who bought one of her phones and didn't know how to turn it on. So I had to walk her through that process. <laughs> done uh, the PR part because I like public speaking. So um, I've done everything from supply chain management. I didn't know anything about supply chain, but I just learned from the job. You do everything in, in a startup scene. And I think it's that's a very valuable asset. So if any of the the people here listening, if they're, you're thinking of what, what should my first gig or internship or anything be, I would strongly suggest pick a startup because you're going to learn a lot of skills that are um, really valuable, but you might not be learning them at school. Now, that's a great, great suggestion. And Gabe, I know and I would love you to share with, the, with our Java junkies how you started your own social enterprise, HRMB. And I don't know if I'm going to pronounce this correctly, Harambi? Yes. Which means it, let's pull together in Swahili. Why don't you tell us what it is and, and what happened to it? Absolutely. First, uh, a, a notice. Uh, I know Harambi became a meme after we started the company. Uh, it was the, the, the gorilla who 
people thought it was going to attack the baby that fell into the his its cage, but it was protecting it. So we didn't name it after that, just as a as a side note. We named it before all of that happened. But Harambe started when I when I went to I decided after my my stint in the in the startup. I decided I wanted to change my major. I, I thought I was going to do a, a graduate degree on marketing, just sort of keep going. But I said, screw that. I, I really want to learn more about how startups work, how to start one and innovation in general, etc. So I just picked, a, uh, I found a, a graduate program exclusively on that. And I applied and I got it. And once I was there, because of the nature of the program, it means entrepreneurship and innovation studies, they encourage you to start something while you're at school. And so instead of like, um, instead of a final exam to pass or a final project, the way they assess you is like, is your business sound enough? So you have to, to start something, you have to have a business plan and show some remembrance of success. And that's how you, they would determine if you graduate or not, which I thought was really cool. So I, I joined them and while I was thinking, okay, what should I start with my peers, make a little team, or I guess my co-founders, I should call them. One of the campus, um, I forget what his title was, but there was a person in charge of trying to get students to be more socially conscious. That's why I picked that school. It's other business school. They do have a high investment in social good. And he, he name dropped uh, this global competition called Hold Prize that the whole point is to make entrepreneurship for good. So we're like, okay, let's apply for that. What's the challenge? We picked the, we read the, the case, decided to come up with a solution and uh, we built a company around that. And the challenge was how to uh, improve the, the health of 10 million people in by 20, 2020, I think it was uh, the, the goal. So we picked, we went through a lot of different iterations as startup, that startup Django uh, uh, for uh, changes. They don't like to say we, we didn't like the idea or it didn't work. They say, oh, we iterated. So we, Sounds we fancier. Yeah, that's San Francisco talk. If you go into any cafe in San Francisco and everyone's iterating. Um <laughs> So we went through a lot of them, and then ultimately we we decided to we got financed to go to Kenya because we decided we're going to help slum dwellers in Kenya because uh, they have one of the biggest slum communities in in Africa. And we went there, and we just decided, okay, instead of us trying to find figure out what they need from Barcelona, where we were, I was studying, let's go there and ask them, we know, and try and figure out what they need from their their community. And we found that uh, there's a lot of problems with myopia so there's a lot of eye uh, conditions and since their biggest health problem is poverty i'd like to say that the biggest health problem in the world for poor people is poverty because that causes all sorts of uh, other health problems we looked at okay how do you generate income uh, and these are informal communities these are straight in the slum and we noticed that the, especially the older women relied on making bracelets and necklaces with beads and they were threading a uh, fishing wire through them and if you have any eye problems that that task becomes daunting and it's a very slow process. And we sort of picked up on it like, oh, you know, how long we timed uh, like on, on the side, we started timing people. It's like, okay, how, how long does it actually take them to make those things? And then we took one of the ladies who we asked her if, if she would like us to assess her eye conditions and maybe give her some glasses. And we gave her a pair of glasses to her that fit her, her measure and her, the timing improved, you know, it, it doubled her productivity. So that's sort of like our pitch, like, oh, if, you know, healthcare, because they don't care about health. You, you tell them about health, and they're like, yeah, that doesn't matter. My biggest problem is making money. So instead of trying to sell them glasses for health side, we told them, you know, we're selling you glasses from a productivity side, and it, it worked. 
And then uh, we applied, we went that with that for the competition and we were one of the, we, we went all the way through to the global finals. So we, I think it was like 10,000 teams around the world competed. Then there's six regional, uh, of those 10,000, 300 are selected. Those go to six different regions. So 50 in each region. We, we competed in Dubai and, and they fly around for all of this. And then we won in Dubai and then six regional finalists compete at the global final in, in the Clinton Global Initiative in New York. And uh, we were there, we pitched. Uh, unfortunately, we didn't win. But then we, we tried to find um, our own seed capital. We got a little bit, but the sort of the entrepreneurship scene, especially social entrepreneurship scene in Europe is not quite as developed, like I would say in the United States. So the amount of money we got was nowhere near what uh, is common for seed rounds in, in the U.S. But it kept our doors open for maybe another eight months. And unfortunately, we never had enough money to scale it up. So we, we shut it down. Oh. But that was a great experience. I, I don't really regret it. I learned a lot of what I could have done better. Definitely, I would say choosing the right co-founders is very important. I had some excellent co-founders. I had some that were a little questionable. But uh, it was a great experience. And I, I get to use a lot of that experience, that entrepreneurship endeavor here. Because uh, I got so used to to chaos, like nothing really being structured. <laughs> and then trying to find opportunities in all of those scales to move forward on a day-to-day basis. And not, not on a monthly or yearly basis. It was just day-to-day. And I think that was a, I get to use that experience in my day-to-day job here. It's amazing, Gabe. It really is. I, I think it's a shame that Harambe wasn't able to keep going, but maybe at some point you can restart it because it sounds like your mission was fantastic, just fantastic. By the way, you mentioned the business school. I think you did. Escade, am I pronouncing it correctly in Barcelona? Escade, E-S-A-D-E. Yes. And this is the school that's focused exclusively on entrepreneurship? No, it's a, it's a business and law school. However, they do have an entrepreneurship program. Uh, I think it was one of the first in, at the graduate level in Spain to do it. And the reason I chose that one over any other school anywhere is because they do have a, a high commitment to social goals. So it was like a perfect match for what I wanted to do. Fantastic. Gabe, just very quickly here, it, and it feels like maybe you've already touched on it with Harambe, but if you could share a story with our listeners about a low time for you in your profession at any point when you really felt like, you know, whether it was that you had a challenging boss or you were in over your head or you, you know, screwed up in some way and just had to dig deep to move forward and how you did it. Well, the first one was definitely Harambe. You know, I felt like I was on top of the world being a global finalist. They treat you. It's kind of like the, the hype Silicon Valley gives to potential startups that crash and burn like a few months later. So once we got to the global finals, we were surrounded by people who were just flying us all over the place. We we're doing interviews. Our pictures were everywhere. I think my picture is still in this other website. Uh, you know, I felt like I was on top of the world. And when that collapsed, I wasn't, I, I was 24. I wasn't really prepared. I, I guess I had, mentally I wasn't prepared to, to fail because uh, I felt like I kept winning in life at, until that point. And I, uh, that to me was a huge wake up call. Um, because when that collapsed, I, you know, I, I was having a hard time trying to think like, how do I even look for jobs? Because I'm, I went straight from school to my own thing. And I sort of got used to being my own boss. And I, I didn't like the idea of losing. And I think the 
what I did is after a few months of being just almost depressed about the situation, I noticed that the reason I wasn't finding anything is because, uh, you know, I, I had this, I wasn't looking at my, my self-worth was down the drain. So I stopped doing everything that I was doing and I started focusing on, I guess it sounds a little corny, but loving myself again, realizing, you know, I'm, I am worth it. I'm a smart kid. Uh, I've, I've achieved a lot of things. And I try to change the narrative that instead of, oh, I, I, I totally failed, started uh, changing the narrative. Like, actually, what have I learned from this? And the moment I started doing that, I started changing my applications based on that. So my cover letters were all but like, oh, this is how, what I've learned from my failed startup experience. And I started getting a bit more positive responses. So uh, that that period of time has probably been my lowest professional uh, so far, my lowest, uh, hopefully the only one in, in my professional career. My self-worth was down the drain. I had no idea how to apply for jobs. I had no idea what it was like to work for a boss. Because even when I was on, in the, working for a startup, we had a CEO, but everyone was sort of always autonomous. So it was really different. And I, it just took a lot of, sort of pausing, reflecting, and realizing that I wasn't going to get anything until I started believing in myself that I could. And I think that's important to know, especially now when it's so, it's so difficult to get uh, jobs. You might send 200 applications, you might hear from two or three. Just never let that, that sort of um, performance, I would say, like a ratio of two out of 200, it's kind of weak. Don't let that affect your own self-worth. It affected me. It was it was really crappy. At one point, I had no money because I, I, I wasn't working at the time. And uh, I was living off lentils and onions for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Never again will I do that. So, um, and it, everything changed when I started seeing my own self-worth again. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that, Gabe. You know, I can say listening to you and I'm 54 years old and thinking, oh my God, this amazing guy who was in his... 20s who's thinking that not thinking that he's this fantastic person because he didn't win this incredibly competitive competition. I'm I'm so glad that you, you know, that you found how to love yourself again and value yourself because it took such courage for you to go and do that in the first place. Well, thank you. I mean, I in hindsight, I never saw it that way. But uh, I guess I was riding this ego wave, you know, where you just keep winning, winning. And it, it's really easy for that to get to your head. But it, when that crashed, your ego crashes too. And it was it was tough. Uh, so I've definitely learned from that. And I'm happy. Now looking back, I'm happy I went through that at that age because uh, it, it gives me enough time to bounce back. I keep thinking, wow, what if I what if I crash like that in my like my mid forties or fifties or sixties, like when I have more responsibilities, I have a family, etc. I'm just happy I learned that really early in my life. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for sharing that with us. Final time for coffee question here. If you could go back and do college all over again, based on the wisdom that you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, the, the main advice I would give myself is take language courses seriously. I, I sort of never paid much attention to them. I took French because I sort of wanted something, but I never gave it much thought. Now I realize languages are probably the most valuable asset you can have in this industry and maybe others as well. Because a lot of the, the job you learn on the job, you know, what you learn in, in academia is very academic versus the real world is completely different. But languages is different. That would be the first one. Take languages or language courses seriously. 
And the second one would be, uh, I, I only started getting involved in sort of these case competitions uh, towards the end of my academic career, I would say. So I did it in my, in my senior year of my bachelor's and then at the graduate level. But these, these competitions are available from the start. And knowing what I do know now and all the experiences and the opportunities that these case competitions gave me, if I could go back, the moment I step into that like first class in my first year, I would start looking for what, what can I do now? What can I do now? What can I do next year? What can I do the year after, etc. That would be what I would do differently. Gabriel Sebastian, thank you so much for making time for coffee, time for green tea with me yeah. and the Java Junkie community today. Uh, your honesty, your self-awareness and, and your knowledge is just fantastic. And, and I greatly appreciate you you making the time for us. No, thank you for inviting me. This is this is fantastic and uh, you know, I love the idea of uh, sh- sharing wisdom with the next generation of professionals, especially if they want to get into the field where they want to do good for others. Uh, I'm totally down for that. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.